with you Joshua chapter 9 tonight. Joshua 9. After two great victories won by God for Israel in the Promised Land and the Covenant Renewal Ceremony at Shechem, Israel is tricked here in this passage into making a treaty with a Canaanite tribe called the Gibeonites. Two steps forward, one step back. That's how it always seems for the Israelites, and not much has changed for God's people today. Sometimes we just get caught up in our own messes. Sometimes we can't get out of our own way. The question is, is God still with us in such times as these, when the situation we're in is our own fault, our own making? And if He is, what would He have us do once we're in the mess? A delegation from Gibeon, which was located about six miles north of Jerusalem, present-day Jerusalem, arrives in Israel's camp at Gilgal, which was near Jericho at the Jordan River. It's very strange, to be honest, that they arrived to deceive Israel so quickly after the, uh, the covenant renewal in 830-35. to We would think that um, Israel's zeal for God and their faith and trust would be high enough at this point that they wouldn't rashly act without any wisdom but this is how we get ourselves into trouble we assume far too much we presume far too much the Gibeonites have have been moved not only by news of Israel's victories but also by this knowledge they seem to have about Israel's purpose in the land they seem to know that Israel has been ordered by God to dispossess and exterminate all the residents of Canaan they also might have known that Israel wasn't supposed to make any treaties with any of these peoples. And yet they also seem to know that according to Israel's own law, which is very strange, they were permitted to spare and make peace with cities that were located very far from them. That's Deuteronomy 20, 10 to 18. This, this would explain, or at least help explain, why um, the Gibeonites make it a point to tell the Israelites that they're from a distant country. How did they know all this? Now, they'll say that they had gotten word of this. Maybe it had spread all by word of mouth. Or maybe Satan hates God's people. And either personally or by way of his minions, whispered in the ears of willing listeners in Gibeon with such pertinent information so as to deceive God's people. Because they know an awful lot here. And I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm I'm wondering if that's how they got all this information. Either way, Israel gets themselves into a real mess here. And we know very well, probably, what that's like. The priority for us in the messes of our lives is to remember our need for the wisdom of God and His provision of it for us in Christ. So let's pray. Our Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for what You reveal to us. Open our hearts tonight to hear, to grasp how greatly we need Your wisdom and Your grace in our lives here on the earth as we sojourn in this world where we have no lasting city but seek the city which is to come. God, be with us tonight. Help me to speak clearly and preach clearly and well. And help all who are here to be able to listen and to understand. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 1 of Joshua chapter 9. As soon 
as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Verses 1 and 2 here signal the beginning of a new section in Joshua. If you can remember back to 5, 1 and 2, I had marked off the section of 5, 1 to 8, 35. And the sections in Joshua so far have started by telling us either the hearts of the people and the kings are melting, or here they're mounting up to fight, mounting up their forces against Israel, which sets up this next section of the book of Joshua. However, before we get to those battles, before the conquest continues, Israel receives a visitor. So let's pick it up in verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn-out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? So in some sense, they're familiar. They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come. They're lying because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon and to all king of Bashan who lived in Ashtaroth. Strange that that's what they mention after what's just happened in their own territory. So they're playing the part that they're from very far away very well. Verse 11. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. Right? They're from so far away. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. God had told Joshua that the land was theirs and to take it. So remember, Joshua had not jumped the gun or presumed on God when he led them initially to attack I. That wasn't the mistake that was made. That wasn't a problem. Sin was in the camp. That was the problem. And God's wrath was burning against Israel. They had broken faith with him. That's why they first lost at Ai. But it had been removed and God had renewed the covenant with them. But God had not told them they were free to make treaties with Canaanite tribes. That was not something they were allowed to do. In fact, he commanded exactly the opposite. But pity is a strong motivator. The first thing this story means to show us is how desperately Israel needed the wisdom of God. For one thing, the Gibeonites came up with so much tangible evidence of why they should have been helped. In verses 4 and 5 and 12 and 13, they have an amazing story, amazingly, uh, or have this, they've taken all kinds of pains to make their story look legitimate. Everything is worn out. Grain sacks, wineskins, sandals, clothes. Their bread is dry and crusty. There's a movie called Happy Gilmore. 
where Adam Sandler plays this golfer. He lives with his grandma. And uh, the IRS, you know, it comes up that she owes all these back taxes, so they're going to take her house. And when the IRS man comes to the house and is, you know, putting her through all this, Happy Gilmore keeps saying, but you, you can't do this to her. She's, she's old. And it, it, he keeps, he's like, look at her. She's so old. Like, how can you take her house? She can't take her house. She's old. Right? And so this is kind of what the Gibeonites are doing. How could you refuse us? Look how poor we are. Look how desperate we are. This happens a lot when people show up to ask for money or help from the church. And I hate to say that because it's so hard to know when folks are sincere. But some of these stories are just, they're so sad. Like, you wonder if they're true. You know, and, and, and it's, it's a lot of the time the, the same story. You know, my, I, I remember my dad when he used, to, he used to clean these doctor's offices in downtown Columbus overnight, and he would get approached every night because you get in to clean about midnight, come home, uh, or like 10, come home at 4 or 5 in the morning. And he said every night, every night without fail, somebody would stop and say, hey, I'm on my way up 71. My car broke down on the exit ramp. I just need some money for gas. My dad would say, well, let's go get your car and we'll get you some gas. He said, no, if you could just give me the cash or, you know, things like that. But in situations like this, it's impossible to prove somebody's claims as false or true because the tangible evidence you're being given is so overwhelming. They're not, people aren't going to show up in a really nice car. They're not going to show up looking super rich. They're, they're, they're going to portray that things are so bad. How can you not help? You can't deny what's obvious right in front of you, right? Commercials work like that, you know. You, you or, or can you can't prove any of the statistics they're giving you about how badly, for example, you need this particular antacid or something. And so they're giving you all these stats. If, if you eat an apple and die, like you're going to die tonight without this, and so they have all these numbers and stats, and the side effects are worse than if you just go ahead and die. And I mean, it's just it's just amazing. But if they're right. And you really need it. And so this is what Israel's, this is the situation they're in in Joshua 9. Just look at the destitution and the poverty. We can't possibly refuse these people. These are the times when we need to at least realize we need way more wisdom than we assume we already have. What is able to dispute the obvious that we can see with our eyes other than divine insight? To see what we can't see with our eyes. And having divine wisdom doesn't necessarily mean you'll get an answer in the moment. You know, I've, I've, I've literally, you probably have too. You, you, we, you know, some of the visitors we get, you have to pray in the moment, Lord, what do I, what do I do here? Do I help? Do I, and sometimes you don't get, I've, I've never heard an audible answer. Yes, help them. No, don't help them. So you kind of have to go, but you, you, we, we have to realize here we don't have the insight. If God has made a clear directive here, we don't have the insight we need, not always, to make the call very quickly or without seeking the Lord. The Gibeonites offer a very solid report in verses 9 and 10. They said they had heard what the Lord had done in Egypt and how He'd wiped out Sihon and Og on the eastern side of the Jordan. But what really got Gibeon riled up was what Joshua said Israel had done to Jericho and Ai in verses 3. Or verse three. That's, that's much closer, but they don't mention Jericho or I in verse 4 and following. I mentioned that. They're extremely crafty. Right? They, they want Joshua to think they're from so far away. Now, now, they knew about Jericho and I. That's why they're here. 
but they're not telling Israel or Joshua they know about Jericho and Ai. They want Joshua to think they're from so far away in verse 9 that they had no idea those things had happened. They're saying we'd heard what happened in Egypt, which again would have been over 40 years ago. We heard about Sihon and, uh, and Og. And so the most deceptive part of their argument comes in verses 9 through 11, though. They say that it's the reputation of Yahweh, Israel's God, that's caused them to come. And the interesting thing is, is you can find comparisons between their words, literally, and Rahab's back in chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. The wisdom Israel needs here is to discern the difference between faith, like Rahab had, and flattery, like Gibeon has. Especially when the flattery sounds spiritual and pious. One commentator says, it's all very subtle because there's always something heartwarming for most of us when we hear that God's dealing with us are being spoken of by people at a distance. That's very good. It's all very subtle because there's always something heartwarming for most of us when we hear that God's dealing with us, our dealings with us are being spoken of by people at a distance. When people talk us up, we like it. When they flatter us, we like it. It makes us silly and foolish. We, we take flattery as a sign that God approves of what we do. We love to be flattered and we take people's adoration of us as a sign that God approves of us. Beloved, that is so dangerous. It is so dangerous. Jesus said we'd be hated by all for His name's sake. Why would we take people speaking well of us as a sign that God is with us. Why would we do that? Jesus said literally how terrible it is when all men speak well of you. And we keep trying to gain a reputation in the community or in the world so that people speak well of us and like us and think highly of us. Why? Why do we do that? Why do we put so much stock in the opinions and flattery of people we keep thinking there's a way to make the world like us and make the world want us around it. And we'll, we'll argue for all kinds of things to keep that. No, you don't understand. People like us. They like what we do. They love what we do. Why is that a sign of God's approval of what we're doing? We need wisdom. Wisdom, like Israel did, but they, like us, neglected it. In verse 14, it's blatant that that's what they did. They didn't even ask. Again, for conquest... They didn't have to ask. God had made His Word clear. He'd already said what to do. But this, making a treaty with these Gibeonites, they needed to stop and consider things and look beyond the flattery. Your God is the best. He's the greatest. Right? Look beyond that. It didn't matter if the Gibeonites flattered them or it didn't matter how poor they looked. God had expressly commanded Israel not to make treaties with Canaanites in the land to which they were going in Exodus 34, 12. They already had God's Word. There was no thinking that needed to be done. We can't make a treaty with you. Right? In the text, in fact, with what's going on, you know what, it's nice that you're all here so that we can get this over with now, but we're about to wipe you out. I know that sounds so cruel, but technically... That was the Lord's clearly revealed will at that time in Canaan. That's when we need wisdom. Our flesh is alive and well, even as God's people. 
flattery is not a justification for being foolish. It's not a justification for disobeying the Lord. The opinion of the world, the opinions of others, mean nothing. They are not valid. They're not a reason for us to do something where God has clearly revealed we shouldn't do it. We don't need to ask then. We need to trust in the word that's been given. That is what Israel wasn't doing. If they would have sought the Lord for wisdom, the Lord would have reminded them, I've already given you an answer. The issue is what God thinks of something, not what the people around us think of something. Joshua and his men should have inquired of Eleazar, the priest, as they were commanded to in Numbers 27-21, precisely for situations like these. God would have guided them, but they did not ask, as we are also called to do in James 1-5. We don't know as much as we think we know. They ask questions in verses 7 and 8. They, they even ask questions at the right points, but not of God. So it looks like they're investigating and discerning, but they're not. They're, they, they've already been given an answer. They need to trust the wisdom and the direction of the Lord here. So their investigation wasn't sloppy. Their decision-making was very sloppy. They thought. They just didn't pray. Now again, or they didn't have because they did not ask, right? James chapter 4, verse 2. That's literally what's happening here. Now again, I want us to be careful there lest we get the wrong idea. We don't need to ask the Lord for direction when we're making a decision He said nothing about or for which He gives no directives or instructions. Okay, so don't live in bondage and fear and hesitancy and terror. Right? Don't, don't do that. that. That's not the problem here. The, the example that always pops in my head, you don't need to pray whether or not you can have an affair with somebody because you really love them. The answer is no. Right? And you think, Tony, why do you always... Because it, it happens. People will come in to the pastor's office and say, listen, um, I feel like God is... Like, like my, I think I told you before, one of my best friends on the planet, his wife went, went to visit her mom down in Alabama, came back and told my friend, listen, God told me while I was down there that I made a mistake marrying you and I should have married my ex. And she left him and married her ex. God didn't tell her that, right? That, that's, that God did not say that. God had all. You don't say, actually, I should have done the Lord's will back there if, if that's what it was. So I'm going to break the Lord's will now and go back there. We all see that, right? That's crazy. But when there aren't, in other words, this is a silly, you don't need to pray like about which brand of hot dogs to buy, right? You don't. Everybody knows you should buy Hebrew National or ballpark all beef franks, bun length size, so you don't have a bunch of bread on either end, right? That's a no-brainer. But you, you don't you don't have to pray about things like that. Don't live under that kind of bondage. But if God has given a clear directive, for example, um, you shall have no other gods before me. Then if we want to worship something and praise it, we better make sure we're not dishonoring God to do that. We, we already, we don't have to think about that and break it down and analyze it. Is it okay to worship? What has God already said about your worship? That it belongs exclusively to Him. So, do we only need God's guidance when we're in doubt about something? 
or do we need it in a much greater way when we're sure that we're right? And we're, when, when we're going to press on and do what we want to do, no matter what, that's when we ought to stop and say, I need your wisdom here, Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm not even considering what you would have me do here. And again, don't live like pagans. Don't live like there's a talisman out there, and if you find it, then you'll know the Lord's will. For It's when there's been a clear directive and you want to go against it. Or, or you think you can justify kind of getting around it maybe. You're kind of playing a little bit of compromise. When you want to do that so badly, when you are sure of your own way and your own opinion so badly, that would be the time. Okay, Father, help me. Let me think here. Right? Just stop. Slow down. We need to stop and think for a moment if what we're currently thinking is, I don't, I don't even have to consult the Lord here. Again, we don't have to ask the Lord if we should go to the pool at four or five. Right? And I know that sounds so silly, but don't live like that. You know, do I, again, you know, do I, I marry this person or not? Are they a believer? Do you love them? Get married. Right? You don't, what if there's somebody else out there? That's, then you're going to use God to, like, as a, as a hedge. Right? As like a, let me, I want to hedge my bets here. Guys in seminary do that. I know I've talked about that before, but it's just, you know, I'm going to break up with you because I, I don't think it's the Lord's will that we should be together. Okay. All right. Just say you don't like her anymore. Like, why do we do that? It's manipulative. But again, and, and so, Tony, how do I know when I'm in such a situation that I, I should stop that I need divine wisdom? Again, I would say, for what it's worth, this is, this is me talking, if, if, if you're not even willing to consider a path other than the one you already want, you should be careful. You should slow down. You should just slow down. We, we can get so caught up in what we want that we stop even thinking. And just when, when we're doing that, just slow, has the Lord given a clear directive to me? Would I be compromising here? Should I... Should I wait? Should I stall? Right? I, Joshua 9 is a warning, if it's nothing else, against cocky independence. It's, again, look, it's a very American trait. We're, we're like this. We're all born with it. So was I. Right? Just, we need wisdom to know how to function in the various trials and situations of our lives. We don't always know. Don't trust yourself without question. Question yourself. We don't always have the full story. We aren't always right. We aren't always justified. And help is available from our God in His Word. We are His own dear children. He calls us to ask. And you might say, well, God has never answered me. Well, what were you asking? Right? If you're asking about something to which God has already given an answer in His Word, He's already answered you. Right? We, we don't need more. We need to listen to what He said the first time. A lot of times that's why we're asking. We're asking, as James talks about, for out of our own desires and our own pleasure and things like that, rather than, you know, so, so Lord, what do I do here? What do you mean, what do you do here? I've already said what you do in a situation like that. I've already given you an answer. And you need to listen to what I said the first time. Sometimes our answer is right in front of us, in front of us like that, but we crave a different one. We want more knowledge, deeper knowledge. That's how you end up like Saul did with the witch at Endor. We talked about that this past Wednesday night. Dale Ralph Davis said this, and I think it's very powerful. 
Unfortunately, the church too often craves God's power while it ignores God's wisdom. Sometimes God has already made His position clear and we either don't stop to consider it or we push ahead precisely because we don't want to stop to consider it. Right? We, we believe our own hearts. We follow our own hearts, which is the worst advice on the planet. The heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Why would you follow it and listen to it? It needs redeemed. It needs led. But sometimes we just want what we want. And we need to see that attitude as the God-ignoring foolishness it is or we'll end up in situations we aren't going to be able to fix easily or at all as Israel did here. And like Israel, we don't just need God's power to overwhelm our obvious enemies. We often need God's power to detect the subtle ones also that don't look like enemies. But they're just as devious and just as dangerous. Sometimes we just won't be able to be nice. Which also invites more flattery, but we know that. The honor of God is at issue in this passage. Pick it up in verse 16. At the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shephirah, Beeroth, and kiriath Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. And he'll pick that back up, how that happened here in just a couple minutes. So it doesn't take too long, relatively speaking, because they travel a few miles, for Israel to realize that the Gibeonites live quite nearby, actually, but it's too late. They've been tricked into an oath. They made an alliance with a nation that hates them and is against them. Please mark that well. Please. Canaan is always Canaan. There is Canaan and there is the city of God. That's it, beloved. That's it. There ought to be no alliances, no treaties, no compromise, nothing. Canaan and the city of God. That's it. Be careful. Let us be careful with our treaties and our loyalties and our allegiances to anything in the world. Anything. The people are angry with their leaders, as they should have been, for not having the discernment to keep them out of this mess. But again, it's too late now. It's too late. They're aligned with each other by covenant. The leaders are not swayed by the people, but by the fact that... So all the people are, are angry with them here, but that doesn't matter. If, if they break the oath, even though it was wrongly obtained, they would bring Yahweh's wrath on Israel. So isn't that interesting? Now that they're in this mess, and their reputation is on the line, now the leaders want to listen to God's Word and honor God's Word. Isn't that interesting? When it's too late, then they want to pretend that God's... That, that, God's clear word matters. We can't break an oath. God has said you can't break an oath. Why is what God said, why wasn't that important a couple days ago? 
God's curse came if they broke an oath. And they don't want the pagans to dishonor God's name. And again, they should have thought of that before. But no, there was too much flattery, too much presumption. If they breach the contract now, it will look like Yahweh cannot be trusted. Right? Let me ask you a rhetorical question that I just want you to think about it and we're going to move on. Okay? If God were to judge America harshly for her sins and the church had to back away from its allegiance to her, would we then act like God's word about mixing our allegiances with earthly nations matters? Would we then be champions of what the word clearly says? So, with their backs against the wall in verse 21, they improvise. The Gibeonites are to become woodcutters and water carriers for Israel's sanctuary. And now we're probably thinking, look, why wouldn't you just break the oath, though? These are Canaanites. You don't have to honor an oath to them. Now that you know you're deceived, don't you want to back out? Well, that's not the way it worked back then, beloved. At least back then, right? We have a very low view of the given word and often a very flimsy concern for the truth. Israel really was stuck here. They made a covenant. You don't just get to back out of your word because you find out later it it doesn't benefit you or you got deceived. They can't just back out. It doesn't work that way. They can't break an oath even if it had been wrongly obtained because they neglected the wisdom of God. So what do they do? They live as faithfully as they can within this now twisted situation that is not ideal. And beloved, sometimes that is the answer. Um, as a pastor, and not just as a pastor, but, but uniquely as a pastor, you, unfortunately, you really see a lot of marriages break down. You see a lot of divorce, right? Over, over time, over time. Um, sometimes people divorce, most of the time, I think I can say that, people divorce for unbiblical reasons that God has forbidden. Right? I, I, I'm not in love with them anymore. I love them, but I'm not in love with them, whatever that means. Um, I met somebody. I, I'm not happy. I, and, and again, I'm not talking about when there's abuse and things like that. I think that's a, I think the Bible does address that as a principle. We'd address that at another time. Here I'm talking about just that very common, I don't want to be in this marriage anymore. Right? That, that happens a lot. It happens a lot. Hasn't happened a ton here, by the way. Just over time, you see this a lot. Um, Then they divorce, despite you trying to tell them, listen, I, I, God would have you go a different way here. Well, people want what they want, and they divorce, and then they remarry. Which in such cases, again, not in all cases, but in such cases, if you divorce for an unbiblical reason and get remarried, that's adultery. Okay? And so to remarry in a case like that is sin. Then sometimes... They come to their senses and realize they've sinned. Usually when that new marriage is not what they thought it would be. And they ask me. I've been asked, literally. Do I divorce this wife since this marriage was actually illegitimate because I was sinning against God? Do I divorce her and go back to my old wife? Which they never say, if she'll have me. No, you don't do that. You live faithfully in the situation you're in now. 
but this second marriage is actually adultery. If, if it was, by the way. If, and isn't, always, isn't it always adultery to remarry after a divorce? Yes, it is. If, you know, um, if you didn't get a divorce for a biblical reason. Like, like if you just, I don't love you anymore, I'm going to divorce you and marry this. I think that's adultery. Right? God says that that covenant still stands and you're making another covenant with somebody else. That's adultery. So shouldn't you back out of this because it's adultery? No. No, you live faithfully where you are now. You can't undo your oath before God. Now, when you hear something like that, you start to think about all the implications of such a thing. And that's really weird, by the way. That's a really weird situation when all the aforementioned people are in the church. I worked at a Christian bookstore in the mall in Newark, and there were these couples that hung out together, these two couples. They had switched spouses and believed it was the Lord's will and that they were fine in doing it. And so people will convince themselves of amazing things while claiming the name of Christ. That is adultery, right? It's like that's like what what are you doing here? But then sometimes we come to our senses when things don't work out. And so, okay, so if I'm in a situation zone where I've gotten myself into a mess, maybe like something like this, and I can't back out of it, like and I like I have to it'd be a sin to divorce this one. I know I'm talking about an extreme example here, but so I just like what does God think of me now? Like, do I just live under this curse and like I'm just damaged goods and I'm, you know, I, I, I got I got pregnant out of wedlock and the guy left me. I, I didn't, right? And now I, I, I have a child. Like, like, what do I do? Do you throw the child away so you can start a new life? No. You have a child. You have a human being. You, you, you know, there's all kinds of mess. Some that bad, some not so bad. But what do we do when we're in a mess that you can't just wipe clean? Who is God to you when you can't fix it? What's He like? What's His attitude towards you when you can't fix it? You can't undo the past. Oh, beloved. He's what He's always been. Bigger than the message. Like He's always been. And we have to believe this. He's bigger than the absolute message we make. Do you believe this? You have to believe this. Sometimes we do what we want. We follow our hearts, even as Christians. We believe flattery. We listen to ourselves. We're, we're deceived. We make an absolute mess of our lives. And Jesus picks up the pieces and calls you His own because our sins are forgiven and He loves us. I'm not telling you to go make an absolute irreparable mess of your life. Don't. But when you do, He loves you. And He always will love you. You live faithfully as you can where you are now and let Jesus worry about the past. Let Jesus worry about the mess. He's our advocate. Our advocate is for us. All right. All the paperwork will be handled. All the red tape 
will be taken care of. You live today. We're not omniscient. We're not omnipresent. We're not omnipotent. There are messes on this earth because the world has fallen that you can never fix. Right? You, you, you can't go back. But you don't live as damaged goods. Right? There are mistakes that I made before I was married. Sins I committed. Let me restate that. Before I got married. I would love to go back and fix them. I can't. You can't. But this I know. In Christ, because of Christ, God is for me. He doesn't approve of what I do. Oh no, He was very clear that I was sinning. Very clear. I wanted what I wanted. I did what I wanted. And I made messes. And some messes stick around your whole stinking life. And he's right there. He's never abandoned me. Never tossed me out of the house. Never kicked me out of his family. Ever. Nor will he do that to you. He's big enough. He's big enough to cover our messes. Every time then that you blow it to such a degree that you just can't fix it. Tony, what do we do then? Would you run right to the foot of Calvary and you see Jesus who hung there for you for just those mistakes that you made. Just those sins that you committed. You can't live in fear once you're a child of God. We will, but you can't. It'll kill you. Sometimes the Gibeonites are going to stay right there. And it's going to be such an awkward mess. And Jesus is bigger than the awkward mess. You can't live thinking that because you can't fix everything, and because you can't clean up everything in your past, that because you cannot reconcile with everyone you hurt and make it all right, that because you can't mend every fence, that even sometimes you go and apologize and the person you hurt, you hurt them so badly, they don't want to hear it. Sometimes that's the case. Not every fence you tore down can be mended. But don't you think for one second that God is going to keep you at a distance and change His mind about you. Or that He looks at you as an embarrassment or a fluke or a folly. You are His dear child messes and all. That's, that's a part of the cross we don't talk about enough. Christ covering our shame. And He does. So don't be foolish. When you've blown it, don't keep on more foolishness. Be patient. Don't disobey. Save yourself the hurt of that. But when you do, receive the Gospel. Hear it. Let it wash over you in waves. Dearly beloved children of God. Don't go out there and make a mess. Don't. 
but we probably will, and many of us have. Receive the gospel tonight. Take his absolution. Walk on. There's hope. You see, God is bigger. God is not stuck by what you are stuck by. God isn't stuck anywhere. Well, what, what can I do now? I can't intervene and redeem here. How many Israelites thought that at the edge of the Red Sea with Egypt behind them? What does God do when the mess is impossible? Well, God parts the sea. That's what God does. Look at verse 22. We're almost done here. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them, delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. That's better than getting slaughtered. It's not ideal. But it sure is better than getting hacked to pieces and having a city wall crush you. It's hard to blame Gideon. Look, if we're honest. Hindsight's 20-20. They were pagans. They were idolaters. But, I mean, they're just trying to survive. you got to admire their skill here. Their, I mean, their plan, it was brilliant. They're not condoning their, you know, their sinfulness. I'm just saying, you say, well, yeah, but they're idolaters. Beloved, so am I. So am I. So don't get offended if I talk about you having idols. I have them. I worship things that aren't God. That, that you, here's where where am I in this story? I'm Gibeon. Right? I'm I'm clearly going against God's word. Right? We're the sinners here. We're not. Do idolaters that are outside the people of God, do they not need mercy tonight? When you look at them, you, we, we could say, you got yourself in this mess. You did this to yourself, and now you want God's help. Look, I'm not a prophet, alright? But I'm, I'm telling you, in 10 to 15 years, there are going to be a mess of people that had surgery that they can't undo. And they're going to regret it. And they're going to need a refuge. It's all You know what they're doing to little kids? You know what they're doing. Will we be the refuge when the regret comes? Because you could say, look, you did this to yourself. It's on you. Most people know that. That's not what we say. We say, yeah, me, me too, and he redeemed me. He had mercy on me. But 
Israel did nothing but mess up and rebel. Right? They just constantly missed the mark. God is eventually going to tell his prophet in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 3, 6, and 7. I'm paraphrasing here. So by all means, though, check, you know, check my word. Ezekiel 3, 6, and 7. If I sent you to the pagans, he's telling his prophet, if I sent you to the pagans, they would listen to you, but not my people Israel. Right? They're hard-hearted. They're stiff-necked. By the end of the book of Judges, which is immediately following Joshua in his day, we're going to discover, or we, if we were to continue on in Judges, I don't think we will after Joshua, but if we did, we'd discover by the end of Judges that Israel is no better, no purer, no more respectable, no more naturally cleaner or bent towards good than the pagans around them. They are as wicked and as foul and as disgusting as the Canaanites they were supposed to remove from the land. So we have to be careful how much we revile sinners, even the really, really foul ones. Of course they're making horrible decisions. Of course they're using their will to rebel against God and they're going to get themselves in messes literally that they cannot fix, cannot undo. And I'm telling you, this is why the church is here. Because the world is filled with Gibeonites. And the world is filled with Israelites that knew better and did worse. We are only that far away. Who knows why we don't take the path. of And that saying, well, there but for the grace of God go I. Look, that's the Pharisee in Jesus' parable was saying that when he was looking at the tax collector. I thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy over there. And he does not go home justified. It's better to just say, don't try to ration it out. Don't look at yourself and say, I do have something to, to pray. Just say, I'm, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the right prayer every time. Who knows why we aren't in the same pickles as many other people, but it isn't because of us. Right? The Gibeonites escaped with their lives, but they did live under a curse. But you know something? They lived under that curse among the people of God. They were going to hear God's word every day. They were going to see the sacrifices. They were going to see the tabernacle. All these things, they would be around it. Most of the world would never even know that stuff was happening. And these deceivers, yep, they'll carry water. They'll do menial work among the people of God where the only light on earth was at that time. They were going to be near the presence of God. Is that a mercy? It sure sounds like it. And tonight, Jesus has left His church here among those who remain under the curse because His heart is to forgive sinners and rescue them. Yeah, they're cursed. You don't even have to look very far. Yeah, they're crazy and rebellious and foul and pagan and idolatrous and disgusting and their evil knows no limits and no bounds and everywhere they are, guess what else is there? The church. The gospel. Beloved, we're going to make messes. Some of those messes are going to be beyond repair in this life. Such is the fallen world. But the word of God is and ever will be stronger than the word of men.
the voice of Christ in the gospel is louder and stronger than the voice of the accuser in all the messes and disasters we've made of our own lives, of our own volition, and our own will. If he's not strong enough to conquer our intentional sins, what kind of Savior would he be? What other kind of sin is there? We, don't, we need wisdom because we're not only foolish often, but we're prideful. We're prideful and presumptuous. But when we say that, when we acknowledge that, let us remember, before we despair at our foolishness and pride, let us remember when we need wisdom, that that wisdom has been embodied in our Christ, in our Savior. What we need when we say, I need wisdom, we need Christ. The Gospel lightens or lights the way. The forgiveness of sins lights the way. Often what Jesus is going to do, it appears, through His Spirit is say, you have me, why would you go down that road? What do you think you're going to get there that I can't give you? That I haven't already provided for you? Why would you sin? Why would you trust yourself? Why would you listen to the flattery of people that hate me? We need Christ in the message. And that's right where He is. What does He do when we're a mess and vile and sinful? Well, He moves in. He becomes one of us without the sin and dwells among us. And John said, we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. The world needs Jesus so badly. And we have Him. Most people think there's a place you can get that's too far. That you can get too bad and too evil and too messed up and you can't be repaired. You know what? Maybe not here. You know, think of guys that find Christ. On, probably a lot of it's fake, but who am I to judge? Think of guys that find Christ on death row. You're not getting out of prison. God is not saying, if you come to me, I'll get rid of the chair for you. No, you're, you're going to the chair. And when it's done, you'll be with me. What a Savior. Christ is in the message for you, for me. Right there. For while we were yet presumptuous, foolish, irresponsible, proud sinners, Christ died. Messes are real. They're also temporary. And Jesus is forever. For you, yes, you.